and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the things that drive us, and how we might get better at listening to and engaging with people we disagree with. Every episode, I try and get behind the positions to the people that hold them and speak to a complicated human person about their journey and how they've arrived where they are. I speak to people from a range of different positions, politically, religiously, and professionally, and I'm trying very hard to listen openly and in a non-combative posture, really seeking to understand them. I've learned loads over three years of doing this podcast. The key thing being that most people are more interesting than I think they will be, more complex and more thoughtful. And I've also learned that it is much more difficult to dismiss someone as an idiot or even an enemy once you've listened to them for an hour. Personally, I have been increasingly worried about the rise of division. It feels like we're in another peak and we're being formed by our technology and our political climate to dismiss each other or even to hate each other. I feel like many of us are being unconsciously conscripted into the culture wars and I want to resist that. I have a theological commitment to peacemaking and reconciliation, but I just think building empathy and understanding is good for us all, no matter where you come from on the God question. So this podcast is part of my spiritual practice. I hope that you'll find it spiritually enriching as well, and you should, at the very least, find it pretty interesting. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Rupert Reed. Rupert is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of East Anglia. He's author of over a dozen books on philosophy and the climate crisis, and he was previously a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. As part of that movement, he took part in many mass protests, and he was arrested while protesting climate change-denying think tanks. We spoke about his sacred value of nonviolence, which has uh, inspired many of those actions, the role of philosophy in public conversations, and how he navigates the emotional fallout of really speaking about and writing about and thinking a lot about the climate emergency. I enjoyed this podcast much more than I was expecting to, honestly, because um, like many of us, thinking about climate change can feel a bit overwhelming and anxiety producing, not massively relaxing. But this conversation with Rupert actually left me feeling quite grounded and quite inspired and certainly like I'd learned a lot about him. I hope you enjoy listening. Rupert, we are going uh, straight into the deep end. No chit-chat, no warm-up. Uh, and I'm going to ask you what you hold sacred. And you have had a bit of time because this is not a kind of... Not uh, a test. No, not a <laughs> test. And I should make clear that guests have taken this in all different directions. You can challenge the premise. It definitely isn't um, specifically about religious understanding of the sacred. It's a way of helping people, hopefully having a... a, a a positive uh, pause to think, actually, what is what are my deep principles? What are my deep values? What have I tried to live by? And one of the tests in the literature about what we hold sacred, there's various different frames for it, but one of them is if someone gave you money, offered you money to give up on this thing, you might, you'd be less likely to give it up yeah, yeah. because you'd feel offended. There yeah. would be something that, some ick factor yeah, yeah, yeah. around that. Yeah. Um, what, just tell me what, bubbled up in you yeah yeah so totally on that one something which i wouldn't take any amount of money for would be uh, becoming violent to other human beings and this partly comes from my background as a quaker religious society of friends uh, person and as a 
as a Buddhist uh, practitioner. And obviously it partly also fits in with my broader uh, commitments to, to how to uh, practice um, effectively and um, ethically uh, in the world, how to, how to do politics, how to do direct action. So that's my first answer. But now to go a bit bigger, I would say, I mean, to really go into the deep end, as you put it, I would say, actually, I hold uh, everything sacred. Uh, and uh, I seek to be pretty radically non-dualist these days uh, in my uh, practice. Um, and I, I have, there are places uh, in my life which I regard as sacred, but it's as if they are sort of intensifications of the kind of general sacred that sort of numinously kind of put sacredness that kind of numinously pervades everything so in particular there is a, there is a beach on the north norfolk coast which i regard as my sacred place uh and then there are other places for which i have a similar um attitude which i get to see less often such as Loch korosk in uh, in sky uh, which I visited when I went to stay with Ian McGilchrist a, a couple of years ago. Um, uh, but as I say, it's as if uh, when I regard those places as sacred, what I don't want to do is therefore sort of react away from that to say, and therefore other things are kind of dispensable. Um, it's as if those places to me kind of symbolise uh, nature at large and ultimately everything that there is. I would love to hear more about that because I, I read this about you that you hold everything sacred. And my immediate reaction, honestly, was, well, that's not the point of the sacred for me. Is oh, I don't, Well, this is the thing. I've done this podcast for three years. I still don't know. <laughs> but that, uh, and I think probably it's because, for me, it's related to a concept of holiness, like a set-apartness, something of a mm. specialness. Yeah. But I also am a big fan of Gerald Manley Hopkins, this incredibly kind of theological poet yes. who really does seem to have this, particularly the natural world, but does it extend beyond the natural world? Is, is this mug sacred? Is this microphone sacred? What does that mean? Well, you see, I think something which, as human beings, we sometimes forget, especially perhaps in our culture, is that we don't actually produce anything, right? All that we do is temporarily change the forms of things. So that mug in... A thousand years' time, it will probably be sand or something like that. You know, it could be part of a beach. Um, and when you start to take a really long view, a kind of process view of creation, then it seems to me that this idea starts to become more plausible. It's very easy to, to look at, you know, a rubbish tip, for example, and think, well, obviously, that's not sacred. But then you look a bit more deeply. One of my teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh, says, look, you, you've got to really see the interbeing of everything. You've got to see the sun and your heart, for example, as kind of two sides of the same coin, as completely interconnected. Like I say, when, when you start to see this way, when you start to look deeply, when you start to look across a really long duration of time, then even the things that we seem to have completely despoiled or, or profaned are actually just part of this deeper sacredness. That's lovely. Um, and on the first thing you said about nonviolence, my summary of it, how's that 
shaped your life decisions? Can you think of a particular fork in the road where the fact that that's a sacred value to you has changed what you might have done otherwise? Well, um, there haven't often been occasions where I've been tempted to be violent, if that's what you're asking. But I guess one um, concrete answer I could give is that it contributed significantly to my decision in 2019 to throw in my lot with the then budding, uh, 2018, the then budding uh, Extinction Rebellion. And I'm planning this this lecture at Cambridge, which becomes This Civilization is Finished, summer of 2018. Uh, and Three people almost simultaneously tell me, Rupert, there's this group that's just started to form. They're called Extinction Rebellion, and they're saying basically the same kind of stuff as you. But there's a difference. They've got a plan. They've got a plan as to what to do about it. So I instantly watched uh, the... Because when, like, three people come to you simultaneously, you know that oh, there's something to this. I instantly watched the video heading for Extinction and what to do about it. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah. They're saying the same thing as me, but they've got a plan. And the plan, of course, was mass, nonviolent, direct action. Um, and it deeply appealed to me, and I instantly saw how it was possible that it could be transformative. I instantly got in touch with uh, Gail Bradbrook, um, co-founder of XR, uh, and she invited me in to help launch Extinction Rebellion, which I did by helping to coordinate the letter in The Guardian, which was XR's first outing, and then to uh, co-MC with her the first uh, direct action that we did, which was the blocking of the of the road outside Parliament. Uh, this is autumn of 2018 by now. And the the absolute determination to be nonviolent, no matter what the provocation, this was for me a, a key attraction mm -hmm. to Extinction Rebellion. Not just because, as uh, uh, XR co-founder Roger Hallam often says, it works, but also because part of the reason why it works is it's a way of showing what uh, Gandhi called sometimes truth power. It's a way of, of making nonviolence and a, a, a different, uh, more authentic, more ethical way of being in the world. It's a way of making that real and vivid to people. And one of the most exciting aspects, I think, of Extinction Rebellion was the way that so much of it has been so kind of prefigurative of what a better future society uh, could look like. And it is extraordinary the extent to which, under provocation, XR has remained absolutely, resolutely nonviolent. There's one minuscule exception, which is in the infamous uh, Canning Town tube incident in October 2019, when one of the protesters was being dragged off the uh, uh, off the off the top of a train, he kicked out at one of the people who was who was dragging him off uh, in self defence. I mean th that is the only tiny moment at which there's been any violation by XR of nonviolence, and I think that is a really splendid uh, record that XR can be proud of. Thank you. Well, we will definitely come back to those threads, but first I want to wind back to get a sense of um, the ideas that were in the air in your childhood. Just paint me a picture a bit about uh, young Rupert growing up. What was his life like? And was there anything philosophically, religiously or politically um, that was really formative to the man you are today? Yeah. Well, thank you. A lovely question. So uh, I was 
pretty uh, unimpressed with religion uh, as a child. And really, for me, the main thread in my childhood that I see relating to what we're talking about here today was the deep love that that formed in me at an early age and just grew and grew uh, for nature, for for the wild, uh, in particular um, for uh, the sea and in particular, particular for the English Lake District. Is that Um, where you grew up? No, not at all. But um, we spent uh, many of our holidays in Devon at the sea and most of our holidays uh, in the Lake District. I I calculated uh, when I was in my 20s that I had spent uh, about a year of my life in the Lake District because sometimes we would go there two, three, four times in a year. Other times we would go there for two or three weeks at a time. That adds up. So I got to know the lakes astonishingly well and and felt this kind of deep and growing kind of... um, you know, more than just an affinity with the with the landscape, some kind of sense of kind of belonging and of somehow the sort of deep importance of it, and that to me is the kind of key background for for the way in which when I started to uh, spiritually uh, awaken in my twenties and then further in my thirties, um, that that spiritual and religious awakening became sort of gradually at the same time. Uh, a deeper ecological awakening as well. And philosophy, where do you have a a memory of when you thought that may, might be something for you, a path for your life? Yes, yeah, so I was quite lucky at school, really, in that, so for my A-levels, I took a very unusual combination. I took physics, pure maths and history. Uh, and my history teacher was uh, quite a visionary uh, man, and uh, his name is David uh, Tenner, Sir David Tenner now. Um, he um, thought that I should go to Oxford and do politics, philosophy, and economics, um, which one person from our school had done before, and no one else from our school had ever got into Oxbridge in the ple- in the previous forty years. So it was quite a, it was quite a kind of a, a break from the norm, and I, I kind of moved from being a, a a large fish in a small pond to being a small fish in a large pond. It was pretty um, it was pretty intimidating to go to Oxford. So yeah, I went to Oxford, and I was intending, I was expecting to be most gripped by the politics of PPE, and I was very gripped by it. But actually the thing which made the strongest impression on me and I ended up doing the most and really fell in love with was philosophy. What role do you think philosophy plays in public conversations and our common life? Full disclosure, I am married to a philosopher. Uh-huh. Very analytic philosopher, most of which he, what he works on I, I fully cannot comprehend. Yeah. And so I kind of come with a bias um, about its ability to influence public conversations. At the same time, mm. I wrote a piece last year about the way ethics in particular was suddenly extremely live when, in COVID because yes. we the tensions between individual goods and the common good were very, very um, painfully present mm. for many mm. of us. Yes. But I have often, I've often been slightly sad that there is not more presence of philosophy in oh, public totally. debates. Do you agree? And why might that be? I completely agree. So I think one contributing factor to that 
is the bias of Anglo-American philosophy towards uh, a narrow interpretation of the analytic method uh, in philosophy. Uh, that has changed somewhat in recent years. Philosophy in this country has become a little more outward looking and it's become a little more open to continental perspectives, to Eastern uh, perspectives, but it's still a problem. I think the deeper problem though is our intellectual culture in the UK or rather our lack of intellectual culture in the UK. You know, there are other countries such as Germany and France where philosophy is a much more respected part of the national conversation and I think we lose out when it isn't. So you mentioned COVID. Um, I sought to get strongly involved in the national conversation around COVID in uh, early 2020, I mean early 2020, starting in January, because uh, having worked with Nassim Taleb for many years, um, I saw what was coming. I, I saw what a potential catastrophe it was going to be and how we absolutely needed to take a precautionary, strong precautionary stance on it, uh, which we didn't uh, until uh, we'd committed ourselves to many tens of thousands uh, of deaths uh, tragically. But it wasn't easy to break into the conversation. Uh, there was a kind of expectation that this conversation was going to be dominated by uh, modelers and um, uh, medical scientists. Somewhat similarly with, uh, with, uh, with climate. Um, over the years, obviously, I, I have found ways of getting involved in the national conversation on that. But again, it hasn't been that straightforward because sometimes there is an assumption that the climate issue is owned by climate scientists. But actually, in the climate issue, even more than COVID, um, it's a, a full systems issue. It completely requires thinking deeply about uh, narratives thinking deeply about our complex and fragile uh, human systems, thinking deeply about the long term and the deep uh, and deep history and so forth. Now, these are the kinds of skills that philosophers have, not just philosophers, other people uh, in the humanities, uh, systems, uh, thinking. Um, and it is very unfortunate to the extent that, the extent to which scientific thinking, the assumption that a certain kind of narrow scientific specialty should be what is mostly listened to in these matters. It's very unfortunate the extent to which that is um, a dominant view in our current civilization, and especially in a country like the UK, which has relatively weak traditions of involving subjects like philosophy in public life. Yeah. You mentioned uh, spiritual awakening in your 20s and then into your 30s. Mm. How did that happen? So how did it happen? It's a, it's a slightly peculiar kind of chancy process, it, it seems to me, kind of looking back on it, but maybe it was always going to unfold in this way, one way or another. One thing I remember is I had a very dear Catholic friend who got me to read um, uh, uh, Thomas Merton's Seven Story uh, Mountain. Um, which, to be honest, I wasn't very impressed with. But there was one bit in it which I was quite intrigued by, one really specific tiny bit which almost nobody remembers, which basically is he described the very beginnings of his spiritual and religious awakening. And, what, and he said, the first thing I did, uh, which seemed to me kind of relatively... Um, uh, unthreatening and ethical and sort of manageable was to go and attend a Quaker meeting. Uh, and he said, I was immensely impressed by them, but I knew immediately that it wasn't for me. And I kind of looked back on that at the end of the book and I thought, hmm, I know some really impressive people who are Quakers. 
this guy, Merton, is obviously a, a, a deep person and an important thinker, but I don't really relate at all to the way that he's handling things. Maybe this thing that kind of didn't work out for him would be the thing for me. So I went to a Quaker meeting and I was absolutely blown away by it. I just, uh, I was kind of, in, at first I was in deep shock. I could not understand. I, I literally sort of could not compute that people could sit in a room for long periods of time, kind of looking at each other or closing their eyes and not say anything. <laughs> uh, and, and just the, the kind of the, the kind of madness that went on in my head for a while as I was as I was kind of stuck in that space, and then sort of starting to work through that, and then kind of listening to what these these bits of ministry that emerged from the silence, I found it just incredibly powerful, and I thought, wow. This is this is the first thing. This is indeed the first thing in the broadly spiritual religious domain that that actually means something to me, and that seems to be a method that I can relate to and engage with. So I I became an attender of uh, of Quaker meetings. Uh, this was in the United States uh, for some years, uh, and still never really thought that I would uh, join or get properly involved and sign up. And I came back to the UK, moved to Norwich. Uh, and was just immensely impressed with the Quaker meeting there. And finally, to my surprise, thought, I'm going to become a member. I'm in. I'm yeah, I'm in. I'm in. So that was that. Uh, uh, and uh, that proceeded happily for some years beyond that. Then in the autumn of 2001, I had a kind of psychological, spiritual emergency, a kind of breakdown, uh, which started while I was out uh, in the East, in uh, India and Nepal. Um, uh, while I was out there, I also kind of encountered uh, a Buddhist culture for the first time and again was very intrigued and impressed uh, and, and very taken with the potentiality in very simple terms of kind of, of uh, focusing around the sound of a prayer bowl, a singing bowl. Came back to uh, Britain, um, endured this crisis for two or three years, and as I moved through it, became a, uh, a Buddhist uh, meditator, and that then became an important part of my life. How tricky, as a philosopher in the UK intellectual climate, which at high yeah. intellectual levels is pretty sceptical about religion and spirituality in general, uh, I'm thinking because you've written a lot on Wittgenstein, and I know mm. actually Wittgenstein is one of the philosophers who, towards the end of his life, it becomes much more open. Yeah, well, actually, throughout most of his life, in one way or another. Interesting. Yeah. So, did that make it easier? Did you find kind of hostility or skepticism amongst your colleagues, or was it a very private thing that did not impact your professional life as a philosopher? Yeah, a bit of both, but certainly I have been influenced and helped by those uh, philosophers who have really engaged uh, with this. So one example uh, would be Nietzsche, who of course engages in a brilliant and extremely uh, anti-religious way. But actually it turns out that that's more uh, complicated um, than it looks, or at least that's what I've argued in one or two publications, that, that Nietzsche's kind of extreme polemics against Christianity and to some extent against Buddhism and so forth conceal a kind of admiration for Jesus Christ and a kind of sense of the, of the immense power 
um, of uh, of religion and spirituality, which he wants, in a certain sense, I think, to transmute. Um, more obviously, I've been influenced by Soren Kierkegaard, by uh, Knud Logstrup, uh, and most of all by Wittgenstein, who actually has this attitude of immense respect towards uh, religion, uh, which he distinguishes from what he calls superstition, uh, which he thinks is of a piece with kind of scientific delusions and so forth. And I've also seen you've been writing about pantheism. Absolutely. Well, one of the the dimensions of spirituality and uh, and religion, which has become increasingly important to me, uh, is um, is ecology uh, and thinking about ourselves as um, beings who are present in a, a, a universe and in uh, on a living and fragile uh, planet. And yeah, I've I've uh, argued and and I I strongly believe this that uh, the time that we're moving into a time of uh, immense uh, uh, challenge and heartbreak is going to be a time when people are going to be looking for spiritual resources. Uh, it's a time when we're already starting to see, and this is a wonderful thing, uh, a growing interest in and return to, if you will, um, indigenous um, thinking. And indigenous thinking is very often um, animistic. Uh, and this is something which is quite hard for us uh, in the culture that we're in to take seriously, I think. But I think that there's a sense in which we have to try to see, well, what would it mean to take it seriously? And a kind of way into that, I think, might be the sense of kind of generalized uh, sacredness, which I sort of started out this podcast by mentioning, which is present in pantheism. Could you just define animism for me? Because not everyone will have the kind of category. Yeah, so animism, basically the idea that uh, everything is alive, that everything is animate, that everything has a kind of a a spirit in some sense or another. There's a fascinating book which I'm reading right now uh, by um, a, a guy called Abram. It's called The Spell of the Sensuous, which seeks to understand how this... Um, this animistic notion needn't be as it's sometimes been thought to be a sort of superstitious projection of something like um, uh, human uh, individuality onto every um, object or other being, but is some kind of sense of trying to uh, engage with or appreciate uh, the sense in which um, certainly um, uh, other animals and, and plants and possibly uh, 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 things that are not alive as well, uh, should be regarded as having, in some sense, their their own um, specific uh, uh, identity and nature and aliveness. So this is all, I find it fascinating because I'm that kind of nerd, but what does it mean in practice for you, mm. your day-to-day -day life, your kind of emotional spiritual well-being? What does being a kind of Quaker Buddhist pantheist yeah. mean? How does it show up? Yeah, well, so I, I think... So one place to start would be this sense of, well, if we really start to think that and feel that uh, everything is sacred or possibly uh, uh, everything is alive or everything is, is worthy of, uh, of, of uh, veneration or even a kind of uh, worship, it does kind of then sit uh, pretty uncomfortably with that to, uh, to be... Um, at least as it were on the level of fantasy, 
destructive uh, of these things. Um, and there is also something more specific, which is that um, I do. Uh, uh, I, I'm a I'm a great lover of uh, of uh, of rocks and and sands and um, and all sorts of wonderful features of our earth. But I do also think there is something um, profoundly special about life uh, uh, and uh, about living on the planet, which is the only one in the universe that we know that, uh, that has life. All of this is a kind of uh, substrate for me of uh, an attitude of um, profound reverence for, for life, for this astonishing, incredibly beautiful, even now, uh, living planet, and for being absolutely determined to to play my part in helping to look after it because you know that the only question that our children are going to ask us the only thing they're going to be interested in in 20 to 30 years time is what did you do to help safeguard this incredible living planet while there was time to really make a difference in doing so uh, and i hear that kind of in my head or in my heart quite often i mean really quite often uh, and yeah, all of that helps to kind of keep me um, on the path of uh, struggling hard at every level, uh, intellectually and politically and, uh, and out there on the streets and so forth um, for, um, well, a future. Mm. I'd love to hear how you navigate that space emotionally because I imagine that many listeners will have looked at this episode and thought, oh, do I have to listen to an episode about climate? <laughs> this morning I had to sit down and pray because I was like, God, I am managing my climate anxiety just about by putting my roots down deep into the love of God, by uh, doing what we can, um, trying to be faithful to the things that we can we can do, but almost just focusing my attention on what, on what is within my sphere, you know, Absolutely. within my power, within my control. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of activists and a lot of environmentalists who've been through the cycle of real despair and real grief. Mm. And um, how do you manage that yourself, given as I know from your, you know, that you say that the odds are very much against us at this stage. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we should sit down and give up. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great and rich question. Let me start out just by, with just a little brief remark about climate. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about so far, it's not just about climate. And I really think it's, it's helpful to remind ourselves of that. It's much bigger than climate. I mean, climate is vast and kind of pervasive. But we're talking about the whole of life on this planet. And we're talking about um, wild nature. And we're talking about pollution, so on and so forth. And that, I think, can be helpful. It can be helpful to uh, raise us a bit out of any possible, uh, which is often present, anthropocentrism, uh, human-centeredness. And it can be helpful in terms of it being easier, I think, to find the spirit of, well, spirit uh, in um, in life, in biodiversity, uh, in in beautiful nature, and so on and so forth. Now, in terms of these difficult uh, emotions, um, well. Yeah, speaking personally, I've been on a journey and uh, you sort of said yourself just then, Liz, that uh, a lot of this tends to come in some kind of set of waves. Uh, in the 
in the spring of 2020, we had uh, we had uh, COVID, and and uh, I'll confess to you that, like quite a lot of other people, I think the first uh, lockdown for me was actually quite a joyous time. I actually found myself in the summer of. 2020 in a space of really strong um, psychological uh, health. I felt kind of stronger and more confident in myself than I had done for many, many years. And what happened then was quite interesting. In that condition, what I found was that I was able to face up to climate reality and ecological reality more resolutely even than I had done uh, over the past several years, which is pretty resolutely already. But um, what I found was I I was just, I, I was strong enough to look it directly in the face. But then what happened was when I did look it directly in the face, I started to to unravel again. Uh, I found myself absolutely consumed in the summer of of 2020 by uh, climate anxiety and eco-grief, and it was invading my dreams. Uh, And I then entered a period of psychological struggle again. Uh, And then in the winter lockdown, that became really awful. I mean, that was just a dire, dire time for me, uh, 2020 into 2021. Um, Recovered again since then uh, and was in very good shape again, I would say, by by this summer and early autumn. Then I went to COP. I spent a, a, a remarkable few weeks at COP, um, participated in some magnificent, extraordinary things, had the horrendous experience of being in the official blue zone at COP, which was just a dire place, uh, and 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 came home after the pathetic agreement that they reached in, in Glasgow and fell into a really serious depression for a few days, just thinking, oh my God, we are so stuffed. We are so, so stuffed. So yeah, that's that's a little bit of my uh, personal trajectory. But you know, if that sounds a bit tough, what I've so, so much found over the years, and this is why it is about waves and not just about getting stuck in something, is that I always come out of these difficult periods. And when I come out of them, I am fueled by the emotions that I've experienced in them. And this is, I think, the profound secret of the success of Extinction Rebellion and, and of Greta Thunberg, that this the radical spirit of, of truth-telling and the willingness to put our bodies where our, where our mouths are and uh, to... Uh, to really step up to the plate and, and, and do what we say is necessary. Um, the real secret of that comes from these emotions. It comes from being willing to feel the eco-grief and the climate anxiety uh, and the rage. And, and Greta is an astonishing conduit for, for these. And, and uh, while I was in Extinction Rebellion, I found that myself and some colleagues were able to do something really quite similar in the media, in our talks, etc. And it was that that was attracting people to us. It was a willingness even to go to places like being depressed or feeling despair. Because, you know, people are terribly afraid of despair. But what my teacher, Joanna Macy, taught me about despair is despair is nothing to be frightened of, provided you're willing to to, to feel it and, and look at it and understand it uh, and be powered by it and to move through it. If you get stuck permanently in despair, well, that would be a terrible 
obviously a terrible thing. But that's not what happens if you actually allow yourself to, to face it rather than continually trying to, to fend it off. And then you realize that the despair and the grief and the anger and the anxiety, what they all come from is love. That's what it's all about. You know, we, we're angry because we love our children or love these landscapes that are being despoiled. We feel grief because we love these, uh, these fellow creatures. We feel fear because we're, we, we love uh, our children because we love ourselves. So it's love that fuels all of it. And then you tap back into that love again and that, that gives you an immense power again. Like I say, I think this is the secret of how XR and the school climate strikers cut through and so many others uh, had not. And the really exciting thing is that I believe we've only just started to touch this immense power of truth and this immense power of emotional authenticity. The incredible energy of these so-called negative emotions, which actually all come from the ultimate positive uh, emotion of love. So in the darkness of that time, that gives me really immense hope. And I have been seeing a um, lot, I feel like I'm balanced in a strange place because lots of my friends who are Christians see shrinking congregations, the decline of um, Christianity in the form that it's been previously. Mm. I, because I'm sort of weird crosser of tribal boundaries and spend more time outside the church than I do inside it, see something really different, which is a real upswing in spiritual hunger and spiritual openness. Yes. The number of people who I, 10 years ago, would have never said, like, do you want to talk to me about Jesus? <laughs> um, that now are like, okay, like, forgive my swearing, but shit got real. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we need something deeper and older and more robust. We need structures of meaning and belonging because the kind of materialist worldview of if we just have enough prosperity and security, we'll all be okay. Yeah, that's one, dying. Yeah, it turned out it wasn't existentially satisfying anyway, and now it doesn't even look like it's necessarily an option. Yes. And so yes. what else is there? Do yes. you also see spiritual openness? And what might that mean for congregations, people who are kind of in religious communities and their yes. ability to help, to offer what they have? Yeah. Yeah, super question. So let's start with um, with nonviolent direct action again, and and the the immense importance in the history of that of Martin Luther King and of Gandhi, and the immense importance for them of their um, Christian and uh, and Hindu backgrounds, and of their broader reading in prophetic traditions, and so on and so forth. I think this is going to be an ongoing source of resource for those who are going to be engaged in the nonviolent uh, struggles of the 2020s, of which there are going to be many and those are going to grow. And there is no question but that the climate movement, uh, broadly speaking, will grow in the 2020s as the emergency deepens. So that's kind of one place uh, to start. And some of us who are who have uh, sort of moved on, as I have now, from formal involvement with Extinction Rebellion, some of us are, are seeking to uh, foment uh, what comes next with very much an eye on this kind of inner work and on the profound importance and potentiality uh, of spirituality and of uh, religious traditions in motivating that. I think there is a potentiality for um, 
for greater relevance to our time, to the extent to which uh, Christian denominations pick up on this and pick up on the emergent and insurgent um, eco-spirituality. So I'm thinking, for example, of the Laudato Si by Pope Francis um, strongly advised and, and helped by one or two of his top uh, cardinals, including Cardinal Turkson. Uh, and the Laudato Si, if anyone hasn't read it, I mean, it is an absolutely magnificent document, a really beautiful uh, testimony to, uh, to Gaia, uh, uh, richly um, based in Catholic thought, also richly open and ecumenical, not at all narrow or dogmatic, and a beautiful poetic work. Um, and it's nice and short. It's, it's an <laughs> astonishingly important uh, piece. I've been talking with one or two people in the Catholic Church uh, recently, and, and I've been saying to them, why hasn't the church made more of this? Because I think it kind of really hasn't. It hasn't been kind of very much kind of mainstreamed into what happens with, uh, with Catholic uh, congregations. It hasn't been uh, uh, placed as, as something to really... Uh, aspire to and, and make meaningful in the entire kind of institutional and practical life of, of the church in terms of everything from um, what do you do with your, with your land, uh, with your estate, uh, to uh, what kind of uh, uh, messages are you uh, putting out at times like um, uh, COP26 or on key issues such as human uh, population and reproduction and so forth. And you know, maybe there are there are moves like that that could be made uh, elsewhere as uh, as well. Uh, a, a group like the Unitarians, for example, who have been struggling with uh, dwindling congregations, perhaps they could go uh, further uh, down this track and establish uh, a greater relevance to our time by doing so. So I think it's partly a matter of kind of basing ourselves, as you say, Liz, in, in deep history and in the extraordinary resources present in the teachings of the Buddha or of, or of Jesus and so forth. I think, I think it's partly about coming a little more recently and, and looking at, uh, at people like Gandhi and MLK. Uh, and I think it's partly about coming kind of right into the, into the present and thinking, what do we need now? And what is there among people who are alive, who have something profound and rich to offer on this? So I think it's certain that there will be dramatically increasing interest this century uh, in pantheism and panentheism, uh, also in animism um, with the growing interest in uh, what we can learn from indigenous uh, peoples. And I think if we're looking, if we're talking about Christian denominations and, uh, and them asking what's our role now, I think part of that needs to be active thinking about uh, alliances and meeting of minds here. Can there be, as has been argued, a Christian uh, animism or a Christian uh, uh, pantheism? Um, is there a way in which the, the great eco-spiritual challenge of our time can be understood through or in alliance with uh, uh, Christian uh, teaching? Uh, this, I think, would be a, a this would be, it's almost like a research agenda, really, but a very practical one. Which uh, which which could be so important to uh, to the Christian Church and to and to everyone with with any interest in these matters going forward. Thank you. But I'm going to finish with a final question, which is about what you've learned on crossing divides. And you obviously have been involved in a lot of direct action. You've been 
involved in exile and have more recently been writing about a kind of moderate flank and an appeal to caregivers and parents and grandparents and have reflected a lot out loud about what exile got right and what some of the choices that actually alienated people. Climate is one of the hardest things to talk about where there's disagreement, either about the reality of of human-driven climate change, which I was astonished recently to realise is more robust and still present than I thought it was, um, uh, as a question mark. Um, And then about what should we we do about it and where are the levers and who's to blame? Because there's so many feelings. There's so much fear and so much anxiety Mm. and defensiveness. What is there one key thing that you've learned that helps bridge these divides, that helps build empathy, enough agreement to get anything done? So my thought is what now needs to happen is not necessarily to keep trying to go more radical like Insulate Britain uh, has done and I think been unfortunately quite alienating in the process, but maybe to be more moderate, not old-fashionedly moderate, not middle of the road, but just more moderate than Extinction Rebellion, just not not demanding quite as much of people as XR so splendidly did. And to really fill that space, to, to occupy that space, to find ways of making the moved political agenda um, deliver for us. So what does that mean? So as you say, I've been talking about this in terms of parents, in terms of parents stepping up and thinking, what will I do if I am really serious about taking care of the future of my child? Because I cannot do that anymore by just doing things like getting them into a good school. This crisis is going to take everything that we hold dear out within a generation or two, uh, unless it is much more seriously addressed. Parents now have to be thinking about this collectively. So I've called for a kind of parents' movement like the movement of of children that we have so splendidly and bravely seen over the past few years. And I've called also for this kind of moderate flank thinking in the area of communities, of building resilient communities, of not waiting for our leaders to do that and to help us to adapt to what is coming because they're not going to, or at least they're not going to enough, or at least they're not going to enough unless they get shamed into doing so by us doing so. So what I'm imagining here is a sort of transition towns movement for for the now, uh, one which which is um, possibly spiritually grounded, certainly not willing to take no for an answer in terms of being determined to do what is necessary to take care of our futures and to to proof us increasingly against potential food shortage, against potential flood, against the kind of things that we're going to be facing in the next few years. And then the other area where I've spoken about this new moderate flank the most is in terms of our workplaces. Our workplaces are are such an important locus for potential change. So many things, everything from reducing commuting to what is your product, everything from what what are you going to do with your profits to is it possible for uh, employees to engage in in, uh, climate, etc. protests uh, themselves. Uh, So what I'm saying to people is let's organize in our workplaces to make to start to make together the changes happen that we need, that have been called for by Extinction Rebellion, that have not been delivered by governments, that now a much larger number of us need to work together to deliver. So as I say, 
I think that some of this new mass distributed moderate flank will be explicitly spiritually grounded. But one more point about this, one more area where you could see this moderate flank as as a, a meaningful phenomenon, the area of religious and spiritual organizations themselves, you know, a bit like what I was saying five minutes or so ago. What if the Catholic Church, the Unitarians, the Quakers, and on and on, um, really thought about what can we do to actually rise to this challenge. So this would be something which I, I, I think would be more inviting, more inclusive than XR has managed uh, to be. Uh, and it'd be something where the barriers to entry are, are not as high. But it'd be something that could have sufficient seriousness if enough of us do it at scale, that it might actually be enough to, to stop the, the kind of dark scenarios that we've gestured at a couple of times uh, in this conversation from happening. So I'm immensely excited about this. And uh, yeah, I would urge listeners to think, what can I do if, I, if I've had any thought along the lines of, well, XR and Greta, yeah, great, but uh, you know, that's not quite my thing. If you've, if you've wanted to do something but not quite find, found your place yet, turn to it now. In the wake of COP26, we cannot wait for our leaders to sort this. They are not going to do so. But you know, if we actually work seriously as parents in our communities, in our workplaces, in our religious and spiritual organizations, if we actually pull together and take the challenge seriously, I think we can do enough. Rupert Reid, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. Well, as I said in the introduction, I wasn't really looking forward to this one. I have to limit how much I think and talk about climate change um, because it can feel uh, really scary. Um, But I also think there's a kind of duty as citizens, as part of the generation who are... um, trying to work out how we live in a world that is rapidly warming, that means that I should think about it. And this was one of the more pleasant ways and gave me a sense actually of agency and a depth of understanding. I found Rupert talking about nonviolence really inspiring and actually quite a helpful frame for helping me understand Extinction Rebellion, who I have felt quite conflicted about at various points. And you know, nonviolence and the nonviolent tradition is so baked into the kind of history of peacemaking and reconciliation was such a big part of the civil rights movement in the States. Obviously, it was um, a framework used by Gandhi and by Mandela and by many of the heroes of peacemaking and reconciliation who are name-checked much less often than those three are. And so Rupert locating Extinction Rebellion kind of within that heritage was... um, really interesting to me and really called out the ways in which I did feel attracted to the movement, still do in some ways, this sense of um, trying to wake up a society by shocking them, by um, uh, disrupting what is already happening by, you know, a sit-in in a restaurant like the civil rights movement did or by peaceful walks, peaceful protests. And that, I think, is a really powerful part of what XR and other climate protest groups have done, but Rupert really touched on some of the ways that XR didn't manage to build an inclusive movement that felt like um, normal citizens, everyone has a stake. And his new commitment to really building a kind of moderate flank of particularly parents or grandparents or people with a, a commitment, kind of institutional longevity, I guess that more conservative thread really, which I've always thought should be 
present in the climate movement of protecting and nurturing, of stewarding um, and taking care of what we've already received, really trying to draw on some of those themes as well. So I hope that that uh, meets success. Can everything be sacred? I really, I really struggle with that, as you heard. I I don't think, and this is probably just temperamentally, I'm not a pantheist. I feel there is something about a kind of Christian worldview which forms me into seeing all of creation and to an extent human activity also as a gift, as something beautiful to be thankful for, to be grateful for, but not as ultimate, not to be worshipped in itself. But maybe the posture of seeing everything as sacred would be a helpful corrective um, to the way we treat nature and objects now. But um, yeah, that was a a definite um, point of difference. I loved what you said about philosophy. I do think that we are put too much emphasis on science as the kind of high priesthood and evidence and argument and graphs and data as the only key things to be driving our decision making, that actually the kind of storytelling, the analysis, the ethical reasoning of um, how we balance different goods is is this toolkit that philosophers bring. But frankly, philosophers themselves, because they spend so much time thinking about how to speak and write accurately and cleanly and carefully, um, aren't always that great at communicating, which is why we don't hear from them um, that often. I was really grateful for Rupert, actually, just being really honest about his own emotional journey, that he goes through periods of real despair about the future um, and then finds himself energized by those periods. And I just thought it was beautiful what he said, that if we can help ourselves reframe our fear and despair, if we are people that feel those things, which not everyone will, but if we feel those things, that seeing them for what they are, which is from a root of love, um, can maybe help us welcome them more gently or tolerate them. I have a working theory that I speak about with my spiritual director sometimes that anger and um, sadness are very biblical emotions that uh, in scripture, in the Bible that I read, uh, people and indeed God feel feel angry and feel sad. You know, Jesus wept, Jesus turned over tables, that those emotions aren't things that we necessarily need to Um, shy away from. Fear, though, I think is usually paralyzing and destabilizing. And so I'm interested in how you work out a way through that, how you root yourself in love um, in order to become resilient uh, for whatever the future holds for us. Thank you for listening. I'd love to know how you responded uh, to Rupert. If there were things that you agreed with or disagreed with or were surprised by that made you cross or sad, uh, that surprised you or encouraged you, do drop us an email or send me a tweet. Um, We'd really love to hear from you. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favorite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, 
And you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.